Hello, and welcome to The Quarantine, with me, Tim Smith-Lang. And me, Sophia Smith-Lang. This is a podcast for a world on lockdown. We'll be taking and giving recommendations for the best books, shows, films, and albums to keep you company in the long days ahead. Every week, we'll be talking to someone we know about what life is like in the new world order, and how you can keep yourself entertained without touching anything. We hope you enjoy the show. Theme tune! This is the theme tune to our podcast. Theme tune! Ah! Theme tune! Our guest this week is Siobhan Sparks McNamara, who works for the International Red Cross and has just returned from Juba in South Sudan. Let's see if she's in. Tell us about what you do and where you came back from. So I work for the Red Cross. I am not a doctor, which is what a lot of people assume when they hear Red Cross. (laughs) But I work in protection. So we try and work with communities who are affected by conflict to kind of see how that's impacting them and what we could do to sort of lessen the impact in different ways, whether that is helping families that have been separated or whether that is visiting prisons or people that have been arrested in connection with the conflict, kind of see how they're being treated. So that's the area of work that I do for the Red Cross. And up until three weeks ago, I was in Juba in South Sudan. Can I ask about South Sudan? Because to my shame, when you said, oh, I've just been evacuated from Juba, I had to look up where Juba was, and I hope I'm not the only one who maybe doesn't know about the history of South Sudan. (laughs) It's the world's newest country, I think, still. It holds that title, South Sudan. So it is bordered by Sudan to the north, and Kenya, Ethiopia, Central African Republic, and Uganda. It's in the middle of of all of those to kind of position it in Africa. It's been affected by war, the the war with uh, Sudan, first of all, and then by civil war for the last however many years. And it's just now we hope, kind of coming out of that. So they signed a peace agreement and they transitioned into a unified government in February of this year. And it was all looking very hopeful and everyone was very upbeat. There was this real kind of sense of cautious optimism and then COVID happened. (laughs) I'm sure there's a, a mixture of experiences that you go through in your line of work, but to put it very baldly, you've probably seen some dark stuff or work frequently with people who have seen dark stuff. And when something like COVID happens on top of that whole baggage that every individual and the country as a whole is already bringing to a situation, is it we can't even take one more thing? Or is the reaction like there's this gallows humor of we've already been through so much what's one thing more, you know, or how does it play out there? I think it's a combination. So definitely, even before COVID, at the beginning of the year, there was this locust plague that kind of hit East Africa. I don't know if you heard about it, but that started to affect South Sudan. And I remember thinking at that point, like, oh, come on, you know, can't (laughs) this country kind of get a break? Um, So there's definitely, there's that feeling. But there's also, I mean, for me, whenever you're evacuated from a country that you're working in, at some level, it feels like a failure. 
that even if you understand it intellectually, you know the reasoning why that it's about trying to minimize, you know, in this case, minimize numbers to protect the communities that we work with and protect our own staff emotionally to walk away from your team, your team of South Sudanese colleagues who stay there and keep facing the same risks that you are privileged enough to kind of be taken away from just feels like a failure. Yeah, I think there's that sense as well of not not staying and not showing solidarity with, you know, people that you've grown to respect and love and, and you know, work alongside with every day who have to continue facing just those layers of, of challenge and, and uncertainty. Privilege is a really good word and it's something that I've become even more aware of since this has all started in both big and small ways. Obviously, there's a really stark contrast there when you're literally being flown out of somewhere. But also just here within the UK, there's the privilege in socioeconomic terms and it goes like all the way down. And I have so much to be grateful for. And I hope that I was already a person who was aware of that, but this is really a situation that just points up every single level of that privilege that people are experiencing in different ways. And I think there's a comforting narrative that has kind of been put forward about the idea that maybe COVID is some kind of leveler, that we're all in it together, that it's really just affecting everybody. And so we're all experiencing the same thing. And that's just, that's so far from true. And it's, it's not true here in the UK, as you were saying, and it's definitely not true between countries and a country like South Sudan, where I think my health colleagues told me that they have two ventilation machines in the country, uh, one chest specialist who has only ever dealt with cases of tuberculosis. Like, I mean, it's, it's you know, night and day, and we're definitely not all experiencing this the same way. <laughs> the rhetoric of all being in it together is astonishing. And it's this narrative that illness, like you say, is a leveler and attacks all levels of society equally has always been nonsense. The way people are occasionally referring to this as if it's a second instance of the Black Death, that didn't attack people evenly. It attacked poor people far worse because they had more rats in their houses, because they were in more crowded living conditions, because they couldn't go away to the country. And and the same with cholera and dysentery and illnesses that are no longer part of life in Europe or America, but which are in other places in the world. Or the fact that in America... The number one cause of bankruptcy is medical bills. How many people are going to be made bankrupt maybe by a two-week stay in the emergency room, uh, sorry, in the ICU of an American hospital? It's just kind of hard to, to deal with. So I do find it, without being bitter about Boris's stay in an NHS hospital, gosh, <laughs> even Boris has to use the NHS. It's like, yeah, but one, he didn't use it like other people and... Two, as scary as it is that it can touch the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister was never in danger of dying at home alone or being turned away. I feel like it's really tricky, though. People are suffering at every level, and that takes really different forms depending on privilege. But this is one of the hardest things about being a human, is how to not deny anyone's suffering without making it sound like sufferings are necessarily equal to each other because everything's a 10 when you're in the moment of experiencing it right just because someone in our building has a kid and 
they are taking care of them and trying to earn their wage. And they're fine, but their day is really full and hard in a way that's real, even though it's not as dark an experience as being the South Sudanese doctor who has to turn away patient number three because they've already used the two ventilators, right? People become their worst selves when they feel like their suffering is being denied, you know, even if it isn't the worst suffering that exists out there. And it's interesting in this situation precisely because people aren't suffering to the same degree, but everyone is having some experience because of this thing that's happening to us all. How to like reconcile that spectrum without pushing anyone further into a sense of selfishness based on resource scarcity or like anger that their experience hasn't been acknowledged just because it isn't the worst one that's out there. And I think the flip side of that is that it's sort of incumbent upon people like me to admit that we're not having a bad time, that there will be some economic insecurity down the road, but actually I'm having a good time. I have a lot of space and I have time to do the things I love. Space, not physically, but mentally. And I think quite a lot of the middle classes out of guilt are pretending that they're having a psychologically worse time than they are. Just to make it feel Ooh. like, yeah, we. I, that sounds like a mean thing to say, but it's it's interesting. The isolation blues and all the rest of it are real for a lot of people, and also I think there's something that people feel like they should be having. Everyone wants to feel like a positive moral agent, right? And you were talking about this the other day because your profession is so much about helping. So how are you kind of reconciling? the temporary loss of that side of your identity where you are a helper. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as humanitarians on an ego level, 100% of our self-validation comes from the feeling that we are helping or that we're doing something active that is helpful or at least trying to help. And when they make decisions about who stays and who goes home, they talk about essential and non-essential staff. And this is kind of, you know, it's industry jargon, but there's definitely a feeling of like, oh, oh, I'm non-essential, I'm going home. (laughs) And that is total ego because, you know, it shouldn't be about anybody's individual adventure story. That's not the point. If you're not helpful in that moment to the communities that you're there to serve, then you shouldn't be there. And that's true all the time. It's a challenge to then come home and feel like, okay, so what is my identity now? How do I help? How do I contribute? If the most helpful thing is just to stay in my house and to do administrative stuff at a distance so that the people that are on the ground don't have to do that, then that's what I need to do. And and I think the, the hierarchy of pain or hierarchy of suffering thing is really interesting and I think the most important thing is just not to make generalizations and not to tell other people what their experience is so I think that there has been a lot of anger and pushback against the generalizations that either this just isn't going to affect Africa in the same way Africa that great you know yeah that one country (laughs) continent is a country yeah or you know that it's going to be total disaster and there are going to be bodies everywhere and I know that Melinda Gates made this very dramatic statement and there was a lot of pushback from some African bloggers about don't tell us how it's going to be don't stand in a different place and tell us what our experience is it's not a competition I guess of of suffering or pain but it's important just to kind of try and listen and and hear what what other people's experiences profound questions profound people.
have already touched on some pretty profound stuff, but so that our listeners can get to know you more deeply, we're going to ask you some searingly insightful questions called from the Proust Questionnaire, originally a series of 21 questions answered by Marcel Proust, a famous shut-in. First question, what do you most appreciate in your friends? Their passions. I often think how lucky I am to know a bunch of people that are so excited and passionate about a weird and wild and wonderful range of different things. Working in the aid industry, maybe this is like any industry, but you you meet a lot of people that have a lot of the same interests, or at least professionally, as you do, which is nice on one level. But whenever I'm home, the thing that I enjoy the most is listening to friends talk about the things that they're passionate about whether it's obscure music collections (laughs) or what they're cooking or what they're working on or it's their kids especially if it's something that I know nothing about yeah I just love them for their for their enthusiasm and their passion about the things that they are excited about I think that's a great thing to appreciate it's so easy to just kind of get in a little rut of humanity where you only encounter people in your professional field and so consciously noticing that it's nice to talk to people who have other interests is a a good a good value to have especially if you otherwise would only hang out with people in publishing or academia (laughs) yes I don't know who we could be talking about there (laughs) for example one of my friends was telling me recently she lives in New York And I found out about her recently that she's obsessed with going to fortune tellers, like New York fortune tellers. And she hunts them out in different neighborhoods and there are like different styles. And she was telling me all about it. That is wonderfully different. Yeah. (laughs) I just have this strong audio image in my head of a New Jersey astrologer. It's like a 60 year old smoker's cough. (laughs) 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 I can see great things in your future. (laughs) What do you think your friends most appreciate about you? I guess maybe the flip side of that is that I love to listen. I think friends appreciate that. I am ever ready with a pot of tea and a listening ear to soak up their story. You should work in something where you get to hear a lot about people's horrible traumatic experiences. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, flip side of that. What do you think your friends deplore about you? I can be relentlessly optimistic. And I think that something that's important at the moment that I'm noticing is how important it is to just let people sit with however it is that they're feeling about the current situation. And sometimes that is just fully embracing and digging into the anxiety and the kind of overwhelming sadness and hugeness of it all and recognizing that it can't really be fixed you know we all just have to be in it at the moment so as somebody that's always trying to kind of offer a sunny side and (laughs) find a solution I'm trying to fight that urge at the moment. I was gonna ask how do you find a sense of optimism doing the work that you do but then I realized you probably wouldn't do the work that you do if you didn't have a sense of optimism. Yeah and I I think that The tiny wins go a really long way. You know, it feels like a huge privilege to be able now and then to offer a service that means so much to people. So if you can help somebody make a phone call to a relative that they maybe haven't spoken to in years and get to be there sharing that moment with them, that just, that means everything. Yeah, and that's also kind of important to remember is leaving space to listen, not just to suffering, which needs a lot of witnessing in this world, but 
to happiness you know sometimes I feel like as part of this positive moral agency thing you can get into kind of like focusing on the dark side because you want to feel like you're a good person you acknowledge that it's there but something people sometimes need equally much is permission to be okay sort of pull the the weeds away from that little flower of positive experience and just let it breathe as a fellow optimist I'm all about looking on the bright side. I just find it exhausting looking on the dark side. <laughs> There's a lot there. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of effort to be miserable. It takes a certain amount of effort to be happy. And sometimes I'm like, wow, you know, just put the work in. Come on, cheer up. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, what is your idea of happiness? So I, I read about this idea of blue mind theory, which is the idea that there is something that is good for the soul about being in and around water. Mm. And I think for me, that is definitely true. When I think of the places that I have been the most happy, whether it's having a beer by the Nile in Juba or swimming in the lake in Geneva or jogging by the ponds in Hampstead, there's something about being by a body of water that is calming and uplifting and energizing. And when I think about happiness if I could embody it I think it would be yeah that feeling of being by the water Tim's gonna hate this question but what is your star sign Siobhan (laughs) (laughs) Aquarius oh (laughs) yes I'm a cancer and I definitely always feel like there's just sort of goodness flowing over me from a pool, a pond, a river, the ocean, rain. It's like this wholesome energy. Even drinking a glass of water. Well, it's, well. it's very hard for me as a Virgo to, <laughs> to cram that stuff down my throat. So I, drink, I might as well be drinking battery acid. Be fair, you don't enjoy swimming the way I do. And you are an earth sign. So basically I've just proved astrology correct. Mm. <laughs> Hashtag science. If you could go anywhere right now, where would you go? Probably Nairobi. That's where I'm supposed to be. (laughs) I feel like I want it to be a challenge on this podcast. How many people can we get to say the place they would have gone had they been able to travel is Nairobi? Which pre-corona freedom do you miss the most? This is a freedom that I already missed from kind of being in the field. (laughs) But it's definitely live music events. Like Hmm. that feeling of having a shared sensory real-time experience side by side with other people and kind of feeling that pulsing and knowing that everybody else is feeling that pulsing at the same time. There's just something so special and magical about that. What's your number one best gig that you've ever been to? Ooh... I've always had an amazing time at Glastonbury and that has very like happy, fond memories for me. I think there was one year that the Chemical Brothers did a set and there was just like this very light mist of rain that was coming down because it's England. And there was sort of, there was laser coming out from the stage and it's just something about the combination of the way that looked visually and the music and the energy of the crowd and it was just... It was one of those unforgettable sort of moments. If you could have any meal right now, what would it be? And who would you eat it with? It's not a meal, but I miss going for coffee. Mm. Like a really well-made, beautiful cappuccino made by somebody else in a cool cafe. And just the smell of the coffee and the sound of them, you know, banging out the grounds and steaming the milk and the sound of the chatter and 
yeah, that would be it. We can do that. If you're still in the country after lockdown, we can go for a nice coffee. What shall we read? What shall we watch? What shall we listen to? Now it's time to talk about your cultural choices. So, what are we supposed to do all day? Siobhan has some suggestions for what we might like to watch, read or listen to over the coming weeks of lockdown. Shall we start with telly, Siobhan? What do you think people should be watching in self-isolation? I'm going to profess here that I am a huge YouTube fan. I was before and I'm really happy that it's having a moment now with kind of, you know, the National Theatre and others using it as the platform of choice to beam out theatre and and other things the series that I go to to like get out of my head and I think it connects with that thing that I was saying about loving hearing somebody else talk passionately about something that they know lots about and I know nothing about and it's made by Wired and it's called Five Levels and the concept is that an expert I think usually a scientist explains a high level concept at five different levels starting with a child and ending with a fellow expert colleague and as somebody who's interested in education I just think it's really interesting the idea that if you really know something and you're really passionate about something you should be able to break it down to the level that a child would understand but you also should be able to add something to somebody who is also expert without just kind of explaining to them what they already know and there's a great one on gravity which just demonstrates this really well I love the conversations that she has at the different levels we watched that and it was truly a delightful video I learned something at each level so it goes child teen college student grad student expert and each of the conversations is so interesting and it's maybe not something that you would necessarily watch if you're like okay I actually need to get the basic grounding and key facts of x subject but it each one of them was really interesting and had this kind of unexpected angle and almost this poetry there was so much beauty in the science as it was presented by the astrophysicist and it sort of it was most poetic I feel like at the child and expert level in a way the simplest and the most complicated were both very conceptual but my favorite moment had to be watching the little girl they took a video of her at home measuring herself before she went to bed and then in the morning and seeing that because her spine hadn't been compressed by gravity all night she was about a centimeter taller and she just kind of stares at the camera and goes ah! And you could see the birth of a love of science in this kid. And it was just such a beautiful thing to witness. Also, the astrophysicist is wearing, for the whole video, some kind of paramilitary science organisation jumpsuit covered in what looked to be quasi-military badges that say things like Psychor. I will say that she seemed very nice, but also... I think she's a member of some kind of group that we should all know about. She definitely, she looked like she might have just parachuted into that building and like she might be recruiting other female science enthusiasts to to join her. It makes you think about those five levels of 
awareness in human life in general, whatever the topic. And when I watched a few more of those videos, obviously they talk to different people each time, but there are these sort of common threads of the way people react and what they're interested in at that stage of their development. There's this beautiful convergence in a way where once you get to the, the highest level, you return almost to this kind of playful exploratory mindset that also characterizes the way children approach these things. If you master something, it's a way of breaking back through to the freedom of childhood. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting that the undergrad student was basically like, oh, we just do the maths. We just do equations. We don't really talk about any of the amazing sort of conceptual, yeah, ideas level stuff anymore. Because by the time you've reached that level and you've been a child and you've been a teenager and you've reached undergrad then suddenly it kind of takes on this sort of very technical serious quality and yeah like you said somehow then you come back at the expert level to kind of being freed again to go and play with the ideas and be kind of in awe and in wonder of the whole thing again and, and maybe refine your excitement and have it be kind of purely intuitive conceptualism I mean, I know they're doing the maths as well, but when the two theoretical physicists are talking, they don't talk about mass or matter. They just talk about information, as in gravity and indeed all of the physical world just becomes quantity of information. Oh, no information escapes a black hole. How much information would it take assembled in one place before you made a black hole? Pardon? Also, is reality just a two-dimensional encyclopedia that manifests as three dimensions through an illusion? Apparently so. <laughs> I think that's the other thing about it, is that it very clearly maps where you are on that scale of understanding. And for me, it's normally somewhere between, like, somewhere around the high school student, and you're kind of, you're with it, and you're with it, and you're following, and you're following, and then you're like, oh, no. Highly recommended. Very much appreciated that recommendation. The Five Levels of Difficulty series, made by Y available to watch on YouTube. Learn something, have your mind blown. Moving on, what book do you think people should be reading at this time? So I read this book recently. It's called The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Lefteri. And I, I'm a little bit wary about books that people recommend to me because they are connected with humanitarian issues or issues that I come across in my work because sometimes they can feel like a very well-researched presentation of a worthy issue but they don't really grip you as a novel or as an interesting read and they don't feel sort of human and authentic. And I thought this one really did a good job of feeling human and authentic. The author spent some time working in a refugee reception centre in Athens. So I think a lot of what went into the book is based on conversations that she had with real people. So the book tells the story of a man who flees Syria with his wife as a result of the conflict. But it talks a lot about senses. It talks about the smell of the honey and about the feel of the warmth of the sun and about, you know, the sounds of the refugee camp. And it somehow takes you very, very close to him, kind of almost uncomfortably close inside his head. And I found that really evocative and moving and I just I thought it was a great book. I'm just going to read a few paragraphs from the opening pages of The Beekeeper of Aleppo. I'm glad Afra can't see this place. 
She would like the seagulls, though, the crazy way they fly. In Aleppo, we were far from the sea. I'm sure she would like to see these birds, and maybe even the coast, because she was raised by the sea, while I am from eastern Aleppo, where the city meets the desert. When we got married and she came to live with me, Afra missed the sea so much that she started to paint water wherever she found it. Throughout the arid plateau region of Syria, there are oases and streams and rivers that empty into swamps and small lakes. Before we had Sammy, we would follow the water, and she would paint it in oils. There's one painting of the quake I wish I could see again. She made the river look like a stormwater drain running through the city park. Afra had this way of seeing truth in landscapes. The painting and its measly river reminds me of struggling to stay alive. Thirty or so kilometers south of Aleppo, the river gives up the struggle of the harsh Syrian steppe and evaporates into the marshes. I was really curious about this. As your pick, like you say, you're wary when people recommend you novels, worthy novels about stuff that touches on what you deal with every day. What made this one so different? It doesn't try and teach in a way that can feel clumsy. It doesn't include a chronology of the war, or it doesn't explain in detail the different political parties who are involved, or it doesn't kind of spell out the exact process that you go through in order to apply for asylum in a country. It's not a book that you would go to if you want to have all of the facts about this passage that we know that you know many people have, have taken. But it is a book that you could go to if you wanted to try and understand a little bit of what it feels like. And I think what I found particularly moving, maybe at the moment, is the way that the main character lives places in his head because he can't be there physically and he can't go back to them and he doesn't know if, if they exist anymore. So he spends a lot of his time reliving the time that he spent with his bees or the time that he spent in his house or the time that he spent with friends, conversations even that he had with friends in particular moments in the past. He spends a lot of time reliving those in his head because he can't be there. And I just kind of felt like that's maybe something that a lot of people are, are experiencing at the moment, not being able to be where they would want to be or with the people that they would want to be with. And maybe for those of us that are privileged to have that as an unusual experience, there's a level of, of empathy that we can have for people for whom that is kind of sadly a, a norm. I think one of the nice things connected to that about the, the choices the author made is that so the the main character's wife is an artist and there's a great preoccupation with beauty. As you say, it's very sensual in its descriptions and he sort of immerses himself in his memories of beauty. And I think that's one of the primary needs that very quickly stops being fulfilled when people are in a, a risky or deprived situation. And it it's one of the truest notes in the book is that that need isn't diminished just because you're also worried about your survival. The need for beauty is something you feel very strongly. And of course, you worry more about food and medicine, but it's also maybe something that doesn't go acknowledged so much for people living in refugee camps or people living in suddenly quite limited circumstances, maybe who, who don't have very nice housing here, even though they're somewhat safer than a refugee like the ways that we seek beauty if we don't have it in our home are very important it's a key aspect of suffering to be deprived of that 
And it's nice that she was able to remember that amidst all of the kind of more explicit, scary, violent trauma. There's this throbbing note in us that doesn't go away, whatever else is happening. I have a a friend who's a writer and an illustrator, and she set up an NGO called the Kitabna Project, which works with children in refugee camps. And she facilitate storytelling sessions so the storytelling is itself something that children find kind of therapeutic they find it helpful uh, they find it a way that they can kind of express what they're going through and maybe explore some of the things that they find hard to talk about or there isn't space to talk about and out of it have come a series of books which are really beautiful and they're stories that the children came up with so I think there's one about a watermelon a giant watermelon and it being carved out and turned into a school mm-hmm. and there's another one where all of the objects that people the clothing that people have lost along the way on their journey come flying back through the air to them and they're just they're, they're beautiful stories and she's illustrated now and they're published but I think there's something really powerful in the fact that they were written or that they were conceptualized by children in those situations for children in those situations so the books now are a tool that are used to work with children in refugee camps and yeah there's something lovely about giving agency to the people whose stories they are I think. What is your listening recommendation? I'm definitely listening to a weird mixture of things and some days it's really happy poppy and some days it's kind of anxious indulgent down music but the The thing that that I wanted to share was for those moments where you just need a kind of catharsis and you need to push all your emotional buttons and reset and feel all the way down there and then be lifted all the way back up. For me, what I go back to is kind of classical choral music. I have a high school music teacher to thank for (laughs) a love of this. And there was one piece that I shared with you. It's an arrangement of a poem by... Eric's Essenwalds called Stars and it describes the moment of kind of climbing through a forest up onto the top of a hill and looking up at the stars and just being overwhelmed and it's arranged for voices and water glasses. I've I've loved it for years and it still kind of has this goosebump effect for me. It is a very ethereal piece of music. There's something about glass instruments. There's an aria in the opera Lucia di Lammermoor, which is meant, is often played with a flute, but is meant to have a glass harmonica. And this is a pretty rare instrument, but occasionally they do do a production with the glass harmonica. And it is just the wildest sound. It's so beautiful and transporting. And this has a bit of that as well. And there's something quite sad about music coming out of glass but also otherworldly so it really does it's that process of going into the cave into the forest and then coming out and seeing the the star-spangled night sky and that sort of transcendent combination of darkness and light nothingness and expansion and those big meaningful dichotomies of experience that you can really sense in the music have you listened to glass harmonica? So it's exactly the same process as running your finger around a water glass, but mechanised. So you have a turning piece of glass that is wet, and then you run your finger on different bits of it. And it was invented in the 18th century, I think, in Vienna. So Mozart produced pieces for it, and it was this kind of very fashionable instrument. 
but the otherworldliness of it became associated with this idea that it caused and radically exacerbated melancholia so that people were committing suicide after having listened to too much music on the glass harmonica and Benjamin Franklin was quite convinced that this was the case and while he was busy rubbishing this other great Viennese fashion of the time mesmerism he believed fully that something about the glass harmonica resonated with the nerves of the human body in such a way as to drive people mad and so one of the reasons the great classical composers stopped writing for it was they were just terrified everyone would come to their concerts and then go and hang themselves but to go back to the choral stuff (laughs) choral music just is powerful in a way kind of beyond all ability to be skeptical very often you talked about catharsis and this is an astonishingly beautiful piece what it made me think of it made me think of big new preisner and his requiem for a friend lacrimosa from that was in tree of life the Terence Malick film. And I listen, this is really nerdy, but I listen to a certain amount of Tudor church music. And have you heard Thomas Tallis's Spam in Allium, 40 part motet? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which was the orgasm music in Fifty Shades of Grey, therefore. <laughs> but there's a, there is a piece by a sound artist called Janet Cardiff where she has the 40 part motet, which she's recorded on 40 separate channels. And you sit in the middle of a ring of 40 speakers and listen to it. And it is the single most transporting experience of art I have ever had. I feel like choral music is good listening for these times as well, because there are many, many studies that show that singing in a group has an incredibly beneficial effect on mental health. And I suppose choral societies can't really meet for practice now and it's very hard to make music with someone simultaneously online because your computer speakers cut each other out but perhaps a little bit of that special magic of singing together and the effect that it has on our brains can can be absorbed osmotically that said i'm very glad people aren't singing out of their windows here (laughs) because of the lack of balconies and because i know for certain that it being England, it would just be a bunch of people garbling all of the vowels from Wonderwall at the top of their voices, or some kind of garbled rendition of Jerusalem. Before we get back to doing thousands of sit-ups and standing for hours with our faces pressed to our windows, we want to take a moment to thank everyone helping to tackle the current crisis. Biggest thank you, as always, has to go to frontline medical staff in the NHS and the other health services around the world. We'd also like to thank crop pickers and other agricultural workers who are working hard in unusual circumstances to make sure that this year's harvests do not rot in the fields. Siobhan, is there anyone you'd like to thank? I would like to give a shout out, if I can, to Women's Aid, who are doing a really important job at the moment supporting victim survivors of domestic and intimate partner violence. I have been thinking a lot about how lucky I am to have a home that I feel safe in at this time and how difficult it must be for people who don't feel safe at home. Charities like that are doing a a really important job to provide support and information. That's all from the quarantine today. Join us next week when we'll be talking to barrister Stephanie Wickenden. But for now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.
Goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs> and goodbye from Siobhan. Outro! This is the outro of our podcast. Outro! Oh! Stop listening! <laughs>